This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I am the supreme and fiery force who has kindled all sparks of life and breathed forth none of death, and I judge things as they are. Tracing the revolving orbits with wisdom, I have established true order there. I, the fiery life, blaze above the beauty of the fields, shine in the waters, and burn in the sun, moon, and stars. With the all-sustaining invisible force of the aerial wind, I bring all things to life. For the air lives in greenness and flowers. The waters flow as if living. The sun is also alive in its light. And when the moon has waned completely, it takes light from the sun as if it lived again. And the stars in their light also shine as if alive. And I, the fiery force, lie hidden in these things, and they flame forth from me as breath continually moves a person and as the moving flame is in the fire. And all these things are alive in their essence. I am life entire, which is not struck from stones nor budded from branches, but all that is rooted is rooted in me. And since all vitality blazes forth from me, I also serve. And I am life eternally the same, without beginning or end. This is from Hildegard of Bingen's The Book of Divine Works. She was born in uh, 1098. She was the last of 10 children. And she started having her visions when she was three years old. And she's, she's known um, mostly for her visions. But you know, she was also the founder of two Benedictine monasteries, and she was the abbess of one of them. And she was a composer, a scientist, a philosopher. And um, they, they named her, in fact, in 2012, the Doctor of the Church. Um, and they only give that to saints who um, have made some special contribution to doctrine or theology. So she was very highly regarded during her life and, and of course, after. And she even invented her own language. She called it the lingua ignota, or unknown language, which she often used to record her visions. And it was, she took Latin and modified it. And, you know, some of it has been translated into English, and I read some of it, and I immediately thought of Dogen. It reminded me of Dogen, who, of course, you know, took the Chinese and Japanese that he knew and transmuted it in order to express the inexpressible, the mysterious, the mystical, which really means something that has spiritual significance. And I was uh, writing early on Sunday morning last week, and the sun was just coming out. And um, 
behind Mount Pleasant, which I can see out of my window. And um, it was one of those just beautiful winter dawns. You know, the sky was, was lavender, and um, there were these long wisps of, of orange clouds, that um, pink clouds that as they, they got lower in the horizon and, and settled behind the mountain, they turned orange. And slowly, imperceptibly, the, the lavender was also becoming blue. And I, was, and I was watching this, but at a certain point, it, it became a blue so pure, it was almost as if there had never existed another color. It seemed, it seemed um, permeated by itself. And, you know, I think my mind was quiet, and, and I could see this and appreciate it, um, but I think I also was, was primed. I had just the night before finished a book that I was telling some of the residents. It's perhaps the loveliest book I have ever read. It's called The Elegance of the Hedgehog, and it's a French novel. And, um, you know, the language was simple but exquisite. I found myself um, reading passages or sometimes pages uh, several times, you know, as if I was reading poetry that really needed to be... um, taken in and appreciated. And, um, and I was saying, you know, if I didn't have a shelf of, of books waiting to be read, I would have started it right over. I would have started it reading, reading it again. Um, it was that... Um, um, it, it captured me so. And one of the, the passages, it's, it's the wrong season, but it, but it evokes this, this dawn and, and St. Hildegard's vision, and um, in it she says, Muriel Barber is the, the author. Do you know what a summer rain is? To start with, it's pure beauty striking the summer sky, all filled respect, absconding with your heart, a feeling of insignificance at the very heart of the sublime, so fragile and swollen with the majesty of things, trapped, amazed by the bounty of the world. And then you pace up and down a corridor and suddenly enter a room full of light. Another dimension, a certainty just given birth. The body is no longer a prison. Your spirit roams the clouds. You possess the power of water. The summer rain, as it washes away the motionless dust, can bring to a person's soul something like endless breathing. And of course, you know, every day we see things like this. You know, every day, sun and moon and clouds and sky and bridges and um, buildings and maybe a, a flower that is, is hit by the light and just the right slant uh, stops you. We're struck by um, a, a moment of, of actually seeing the, that thing's true essence. But this is happening all the time, and yet how often do we really see it? I've been thinking how um, ironic it is that we have to work so hard to sit so still and so quietly for so long, uh, often just to come back to a, a baseline, 
in order to remember what things are. Not because, I think often, not because it's not even that we don't see, but it's that we forget. That it gets covered over. So we're working so hard to, to really see what is right in front of us, what is, what is perfectly um, evident, and, and yet we so often miss a kind of a visual amnesia. And so when we're, we're practicing the breath, for example, counting the breath or following the breath, being the breath, you know, we're not just doing so for the sake of developing concentration, although hopefully that is happening. And um, in order to be more mindful, although hopefully that is also happening. But we're really doing it in order to see that we are that fiery force from which all things flame forth. That that is what breath is. That that is what we are and what life is, that flaming forth. A burning up of energy and movement and action and will. And that, you know, when we hear so often in the, in the koans or somebody says, you know, that in a, in a bow, a whole, the whole universe bows, that that's not poetry and that that's not just a, a way of, a Zen way of speaking, that it's somebody actually trying to describe in the most direct possible how things actually are. It is the entire universe bowing. And how we can even say that and we can have a glimpse of it and then we forget again. And we need to remind ourselves or, um, well, yes, ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that that is in fact how it actually is. And that that's um, infinitely extraordinary and also so simple. Tara Brach recently told a story um, about two brothers, uh, young kids. They're eight and ten years old, and they're terrors. They, you know, toilet paper the neighbor's house, and they eat the cake that the mother made for their guests, and they uh, tar and feather the cat. And um, every time she punishes them, they just laugh. I mean, they go through the punishment and they just start right over. And so she's really beside herself. She doesn't know what to do with them. And they're not bad kids. They just, it's like she, she can't um, get them to listen to her. And so she goes to her priest, kind of desperate, and says, you know, Father, I don't know what to do with these boys. I don't know. I've tried everything. I've tried being harsh. I've tried not punishing them. I've tried talking, reasoning with them. Nothing really works. And he said, that's okay, just send them to my office and I'll talk to them. And so they do, they both go, and he asks that the 10-year-old wait outside, and so he brings the 8-year-old in, and he sits them at his, in front of his desk, and he just leans forward and, and looks at him and says, where is God? And the 8-year-old doesn't say anything. He's not even looking at him. And then the priest leans forward a little bit more and a little more firmly says, where is God? Silence. The kid doesn't say a thing. 
And so finally he stands up and he starts wagging his finger at the boy. Where is God? The kid runs up, run, gets up, you know, runs out of the room, runs all the way home into his bedroom, into the closet. And so the brother follows him, goes into the closet and says, what happened? And the, the eight-year-old says, you know, now we're really in trouble because God is missing and they think we did it. <laughs> And it's funny, but it also has a profound question. Where is God? And in fact, I mean, you could ask, you could just say, is God? You could just say, God? And if it's too theistic, you'll see, you can also ask, well, what is reality? Where is it? Can it ever go missing? And um, Tenke told me this story, and I, it reminded me, um, uh, I, was, I was raised Catholic in a very unorthodox way. My mother had a very unusual, um, very personal, very intimate relationship with religion. And so we didn't do really anything we were supposed to do. Uh, we, um, when she found out what we were learning in catechism, she decided that she was going to teach us. And so we, we studied. I think I've told this story before. We studied with her every Wednesday. We would um, read the, uh, an illustrated Bible. And she would just tell the stories of um, Jesus' life and, and, and what she felt was um, the most important thing, to know about God and to have a relationship with God. And when we were, I, was, I think I was 10, and my brother was, was 8, uh, she decided <laughs> that we were ready to do our first communion. And, you know, in Mexico, that's a big deal. And you make a big deal of it. And there's, you know, there's a whole party afterwards, and there's a brunch, and there's gifts, and there's all this thing that happens around it. And she said, I don't want to do that, because that's just detracting from what is actually happening. You are, you are encountering God. You're encountering, in this case, you know, Jesus Christ. And so she said, we're not going to do that. And so we, we, were, we had a, a weekend house, and we were there that weekend. And um, the night before, she said, I think you're ready. So this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to church, and you're going to um, take the host for the first time. And it's Christ's body. And this is what the priest is going to say. This is what you do, and this is what you say in response. And my father was, I, I could just see that he was, his eyes were a little big. He said, you're not going to tell anybody that you're doing this? And my mother was like, no, this is personal. This is between them and God. And so um, the next day, we got up and we went to church. I mean, I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt. I was wearing this tiger hat that I really loved. I took that off, you know, to go into the church. Um, but the priest didn't know that he was giving us communion. And so, you know, we just went up with everybody else uh, and, you know, did communion. And, um, you know, I was not, at 10, I was not burdened yet by knowledge. I didn't spend any time wondering, well, how could the body of Christ possibly transmute into this cracker? 
um, that's ridiculous. That's not possible. I didn't spend time wondering whether this was um, possible, relevant, etc. My mother had taught me. I trusted her. She said, this is the body of Christ, and I believed her. And it changed me. That day changed my life. I think she, um, she understood, you know, what was most important. And uh, my family afterwards was extremely upset <laughs> that, that they weren't there. They didn't witness it, that there was no, no big event. And many years later, I, I um, wanted to say to them, there was a big event, you know, and you were there, just in a different, in a different way. Much later, I thought, you know, maybe if I had started Koan study at 10, I might have not have struggled <laughs> so much <laughs> with it. <laughs> Things get complicated once you start thinking. Um, and around the time that St. Hildegard was, was born um, in China, Su Dongpo uh, had an awakening. He was a poet, and he wrote this verse, which Dadaroshi uh, used to love to to quote from um, Endogen comments on it on sounds of the valley streams. The sound of the valley stream is the Buddha's long, broad tongue, the mountain form, his unconditioned body. This evening's 84,000 verses, how will I speak of them tomorrow? And so Dogen, the question that he asks is, what is the, the valley sound's no, was it the valley sounds or the tide of awakening that jolted Dongpo? Who can fathom this water? Is it a bucket full or does it fill whole oceans? Was it Dongpo who was awakened or the mountains and rivers that were awakened? Who sees with a clear eye the long, broad, broad tongue and the unconditioned body of the Buddha? Is it you who awakens? Is it the breath that is awakened, that is enlivened? Is it myself that sees the koan, or is it the koan seeing itself? Or is it the koan that is, period? And if we're distracted, will that tide of awakening still jolt us? Because realization isn't magic and so we can't we can't make it happen but it certainly can't take place without our involvement without our attention who is the one who sees that unconditioned body and what does that body look like and is it different from this body if it's our natural state then why isn't everybody walking around enlightened Why is it so hard to see it? Is, is it? Is it so hard to see it? What are we actually practicing for? And, and this is, um, you know, Shugen Roshi speaks of this often, you know, how, you know, there's a moment in which we're completely uh, immersed, or we want to, what we're working towards, what we're cultivating, is really being immersed in practice. 
But then there need to be moments when we step back and, and do reflect. Why am I practicing? Am I practicing? What am I practicing for? Am I clear? And so, so it's, it's, and it's a fine line because knowing too much about our zazen um, can get in the way. So if I'm constantly measuring and analyzing, well, that was a good period of zazen, that was a bad period of zazen, it, it immediately narrows the experience of, of that zazen to, to my idea. I mean, it either matches what I think I'm looking for or it doesn't. So that's the, the downside of that, if you will. Anything that we can measure is not the Buddha's unconditioned body. It's, in, it's not excluded from this body, but that's, it's not it. It's not equal to it. And so at the same time, I do need to be able to discern at some point, am I practicing? And is it, does it match the experience when I get off the cushion and I walk into my life? Do I feel that practice um, working in my life? In the Avatamsaka Sutra, there's a chapter called the Incalculable. And um, it's a very unusual chapter. And it's just, a Bodhisattva Mind King asks the Buddha about um, these numbers. Incalculable, measureless, boundless, incomparable, innumerable, unthinkable, unspeakable numbers. And the Buddha says, well, it's good that you ask about this. Let, let me tell you about them. And he just starts. And I can just imagine um, this being recited. It would, it would be like, a, like an incantation, I think. Because he starts 10 to the 10th power times 10 to the 10th power is 10 to the 20th power. 10 to the 20th power times 10 to the 20th power is 10 to the 40th power. And he just keeps going, squaring you know, the, the result of these accurately for a couple of pages until you get to a number that is 10 to the power of 33 digits long. And then the Buddha says, and when you square that, you get to the incalculable, the measureless, the boundless, the incomparable. And the question is, why? Why do this? Why do these calculations, I'm guessing by hand, why include this as a chapter in one of the most important Mahayana sutras? What is the point? What is the teaching? And one um, uh, scholar said, you know, the, the, the purpose of that chapter, in a sense, is to kind of to blow your mind. Um, I don't think he said it quite that way. But uh, that, that it's, it's, it, it's doing exactly what it says it's doing. It's, it's showing um, directly the incalculable. But the verse goes a little bit further. It says, Untold unspeakables fill all unspeakables. In unspeakable eons, explanation of the unspeakable cannot be finished. If untold Buddha lands are reduced to atoms, in one atom are untold lands. And as in one, so in each. 
And so if untold Buddha lands are reduced to atoms, are reduced to numbers, are reduced to the breath, what this is saying is that in one breath are untold lands, untold universes. Imagine practicing the breath this way. If you ever think your, your, your practice is getting dull, if you ever feel like you're getting bored with following your breath, can you practice in this way? First with the, with the curiosity, with the desire to see. If the Buddha said this, if this was recorded, if this is still in a book that has come down to us, can it be true that there are untold universes in one inhalation, one exhalation? And then what does that mean for my life? Imagine practicing Mu in this way, a thought in this way, in which nothing is extra, nothing is irrelevant, nothing is not it. And at the same time, it's not that there's no concentration right, and, and distraction. We all know what it feels like to be focused as opposed to being distracted. It's not that there's no effort. It's just that it's incalculable. So how will you even know if you've seen it? And I, I remember... Um, I, saw the, I saw this book, I saw the Aptamsaka Sutra in the library downstairs when it was the reserve library. And um, for some reason, I was immediately drawn to it. I had just started practicing. I mean, I, I had just moved in here, so I, knew, I didn't understand it at all. And yet, I, I felt um, compelled to, to be in its presence. And I read a little bit each day. And I felt um, intuitively, I guess, that it was a book that needed to be approached respectfully. That, that, it, wasn't, um, that it was going to tell me <laughs> everything that I needed to know, but that I was going to have to work. That I was going to have to enter it in order for it to reveal itself to me. And so it was like it was you know, a sacred text in a, in a language, in an ancient language that I could just barely understand. I could just understand enough to keep going. And it was strange, but at, at a certain point, it actually, I remember thinking that it felt, maybe I had been reading too many books, but it felt as if my reading it was creating the very worlds that were being described, which actually wasn't inaccurate. And so without, without understanding, something was happening. There was some sort of resonance. And so I think back, you know, even on that, that, winter, that winter morning, one way to look at it is that it is incalculable. Right? It is measureless. But you could also do the opposite and go ahead and measure. Assign a value, a number, to each molecule of cloud, of sky. As I was sitting there at home, you know, the, the threads of the fabric of the cushion that I was stand, sitting on, and the milk that was in my tea that somebody had 
you know, milk the cow, and somebody had brought the milk and the molecules of, of air that I was breathing. If I, if I actually did that, if I tagged and gave a, a, a number, a value to each one of these components that were making my experience of reality, it would, it would be much bigger than 33 digits long. And how come we are not blown away by this all the time as we're walking around and experiencing this? Um, unspeakable world. And I, I, I referred to her before, but because she's, you know, kind of a modern day mystic. Um, so I, I found her, her life by, by accident, Flora Courtois. Um, she was a seeker, very much. And um, eventually she came to Zen. She went to the Zen Center of Los Angeles and studied with Maizumi Roshi and Yasutani Roshi, who encouraged her to tell her story. And uh, what she describes is really the experience of, of a mystic. And she said that when she was, uh, from a very young age, she was um, awestruck, really, by this world that she was inhabiting. And she needed to understand what it was. And she said that she looked everywhere she could. You know, she, she spoke to teachers and preachers, and she read books, and she studied philosophy. She was trying to get to um, the formula, if you will, that could describe how to live fully in each moment. And she said, but how do you do that since each moment is unique? So where is that formula? And the more she looked, the more she felt, well, all of these, um, you know, philosophy, for example, was describing uh, patterns. She's like, but it's not getting to it. And it really got to a point where it took over her life, where it was all that she was thinking about. And she was saying, you know, there has to be some, some principle that tells me how to, that applies to everything, to even how I wash dishes. But what is that? How do I find it? That was really her, her question. And she said at one point, she was in a psychology class, and a professor said, you know, the world is really a projection of neural, neural activity in the visual centers of the brain. And she heard that as right, the, that means the world is me. Everything that I need, the universe, in fact, is right here. So the answer is here. And so she was 18, 19 years old at the time. And she was still, you know, speaking. You know, every time she would, she would talk to a professor, she would talk to a priest. She was actually referred, some of them referred her to a psychiatrist. They were really concerned about her. And she was acting kind of weird. She said it would, it would take her a whole afternoon to iron a shirt because she kept asking, what is reality? What is this? And I guess she wasn't eating very much, and she would just sit in class kind of staring into space because she said at one point she actually saw space in front of her and on each side of her and behind her and through her. 
and the lecturer just leaned forward. And she's, her eyes were really big. And the lecturer just leaned forward and said, did I say anything that surprised you? She's like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's okay. And so people were getting actually very concerned. But she knew, and how she knew, I don't know. But she, she had some sense that she could go crazy, that she could die. And she was, but I have to. I have to keep going because there is no other way for me to actually live my life. And so then she realized, well, so the senses, that's the most immediate thing, right, in my experience. So it has to do with that. But then why are they so partial? You can only see with the eyes and you can only hear with the ears. You, you can only get these pieces of reality. So it has to be more than that. How do, you, how do you apprehend reality all at once? She said, how do you think with your feet, not just with your head? And then she started, and I don't know if she had any... She doesn't mention any early um, study or interest in Buddhism, but she said she started sitting for long periods quietly, and she would just keep saying to herself, not this, not this, not this. And she was waiting for what it was. And until one day, she... Oh, and she said she started having visions. And she said they weren't dreams. They weren't hallucinations. It was all of a sudden she would have a very strong image. And she said one of the the strongest ones was of humanity uh, in these walled-off rooms, she said, and these little kind of cubicles. And everybody was doing their thing, not looking around, and behind her, she sensed that there was a window. And every time she would go to these rooms, and everybody else was there doing whatever it is they were doing, until one day she was able to turn around and look out the window, and she said she saw this incredible vista. And it made me think of uh, St. Hildegard's vision. And she realized that that was, in fact, what humanity was, being in a, in a world of rooms as the universe unfolded before us. And this was, you know, before the internet. I mean, now we could say there's a walled up screens inside our walled up rooms. <laughs> and so, and she considered, you know, just going off into nature because she, she understood that she needed to be close to herself, to the earth. And one day she, was, she, was, she went home on vacation and she said she was just sitting at the edge of her bed and she was staring at her desk, this green wood desk, and the earth just changed, just moved on its turn on its axis. She said it was, she, she saw the desk like she had never seen it, that it was the... Um, uh, with a sharpness and a clarity that she didn't even think was possible. And she understood in that moment that every single bit of universe was in that desk, as was her. And she says, if God was a word for this presence in which I was absorbed, then everything was either holy or nothing. No distinction was possible. All was meaningful, complete as it was, 
each bird, bud, midge, mole, atom, crystal, of total importance in itself. As if in the notes of a great symphony, nothing was large or small, nothing of more or less importance to the whole. I now saw that wholeness and holiness are one. I knew now that eternity is here always, that there is no higher, no deeper, no separate past or future time or place. And if I could continue in this state of open vision, I felt certain that whatever happened, everything would be right, just as it was. And that line, because sometimes these experiences of, of insight are very dramatic and come with flashing lights you know, and booming voices, but often they're very quiet and they're very subtle. But that undeniable feeling that everything is right just as it is, that I am right just as I am. That, that is um, unmistakable, that feeling. And I don't you know, mention this so that um, we can go looking you know, for that experience because that's the surest way to, um, to miss it. But really just to, to remind us that there is, in fact, so much more happening in our zazen, in our lives, than we can, that we often are aware of and that we can name. That our zazen is incalculable. That the human mind is incalculable. And again, perfectly ordinary. And so it's... In... in, in um, We're, we're so accustomed to um, the bling, really the, the, the drama of a Hollywood movie, that often we can miss you know, a moment in which something shifts profoundly. And, and that you know, the, the, the ending is never predictable. And the characters don't follow a set script, although it feels that way sometimes. That's just our habit. That's just our, our, um, the limit of our understanding at that moment. You know, transformation and freedom is possible because there is no set script. And realization will, will never be the way that we imagine it. I am life entire, which is not struck from stones, nor budded from branches. But all that is, is rooted in me. And since all vitality blazes forth from me, I also serve. And I love how, matter-of-factly, St. Hildegard says that. Since everything blazes forth from me, I also serve. Since I am life eternal, beginningless and endless, I also serve. What else would you do with all of that life, with all of that energy? If I'm, if I'm struggling, if I'm confused, if I'm feeling uncertain about where I stand, what my purpose is, I can try serving and see what that shows me. I, I, I should paste that on my forehead because I do forget. If I get tired and discouraged and secure, 
What if I tried to give something, even if that's just my breath, to this moment? Instead of fueling my distress, what if I give it up, offer it up, relinquish it? What if I serve me and everyone in this room with that simple act of breathing? And then I can go you know, even further. As I get off my cushion, maybe I can do something for someone. And again, I think it's ironic that um, it really can be so simple to shift that in the, in the midst of a struggle, it can feel so incredibly difficult. Justifiably so. But never irrevocably so. That's the thing. And so sometimes what feels like a monumental shift is actually just very small. It's a little bit of a change in direction that can be very simple and incredibly profound. Because the truth is that the purpose of life is to live itself, is to offer itself in every possible way. And as I was saying recently, that is something that we do actually very naturally. Because, because we can. We give because we can. Kids do it and adults do it. I know a woman who you know, lost her, her baby. She was, it was her first child and, um, when she was four months pregnant and she lost it. And she was devastated. And she, didn't, she was out of um, work for a month until she recovered and she taught in middle school. And when it was getting time to go back, she couldn't imagine how she was going to face her kids, seeing kids every day. But she had to work, so she went, she went back. And she went into her classroom early in the morning before anybody else was there. And she turned on the light, and what she saw was the room filled with hundreds and hundreds of paper butterflies just hanging from the walls and the ceiling, and each one with a message, handwritten message for her that the kids had done. They couldn't take away her pain. They could never do that. But they could offer something, and they did. We have a little bit, a little bit more, I guess, than a full day of, um, of this session and this year. And, um, you know, a day can seem like a very short time in one, in one sense. And, and it is beginning as an endless kalpas in another. You know, one day that is, that is filled to overflowing with, with moments in which to um, in which to return, in which to serve, in which to see a little bit more of what we have not yet seen. So if you're feeling you know, tired or in pain, don't let that stop you. Turn to that tiredness. Turn to that pain. Ask, what is this? Let that tiredness teach you 
how to respond, how it needs to be met. Let your pain teach you how it needs to be met. It will. They will tell you if you're, if you're quiet and if you really want to know and if you really want to um, be free. They will tell you. This is also from The Elegance of the Hedgehog. I have finally concluded, maybe that's what life is about. There's a lot of despair, but also the odd moment of beauty, where time is no longer the same. It's as if a strains of music created a sort of interlude in time, something suspended, and elsewhere that had come to us, and always within never. That's it, and always within never, beauty in this world. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.